Rescue the perishing. Proverbs chapter 24, verse, starting in verse 11, going to verse 12. Let us hear the word of the living God. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch of your soul know it? And will you not repay each man according to his deeds? This is the word of God. It was a stormy night in June 1773. All night the storm raged and the five ships in Table Bay were buffeted all night and pounded by the turbulent waves. Bright streaks of lightning lit up the imposing Table Mountain and the small settlements of Cape Town. Few of the sailors got any sleep that night as the wooden ships creaked and groaned and strained at the anchors. Captain Barrent Lummeron was concerned about a ship, the Yonga Thomas, as it broke its moorings and began to drag its anchor. There were 270 men, women and children on board that ship, along with a valuable cargo from the east. As the storm intensified, just after midnight on the 1st of June, 1773, the captain ordered the ship's cannon to be fired to warn the people on shore that they needed help. Shortly after 5 a.m., the Yonga Thomas broke loose from the last anchor and began to be forced onto the jagged rocks of the saltwater mouth. With a loud crash, the stricken ship broke in half, and passengers and sailors began to fall into the raging sea. Many drowned, attempting to swim to the shore. Only the strongest swimmers managed to reach safety against the current of the river mouth. Soon a platoon of 30 Dutch soldiers of the VOC came marching up. The governor, Van Plettenberg, had ordered them to come and prevent looting and to assist survivors of the shipwreck, probably in that order. The youngest son of Volrad Voltemard, Corporal Christian Ludwig Voltemard, was one of those soldiers. The officer in charge instructed the bystanders who had gathered ashore not to go near the turbulent waters. Some people had come to watch, some had come to assist, but others had come to loot whatever valuable cargo was washed up on the shore. And just then an old man on a large black horse rode up. He was 65 years old, Volrad Voltemard, a name now synonymous with bravery and self-sacrificing courage. Volrad was born in Hesse-Schumburg in Germany, and as an adult he had migrated to the Dutch settlement at the southernmost tip of Africa, and he worked as a dairy farmer for the Dutch East India Company. His horse's name was Vonk, or Sparkle. Throwing off his coat and his shirt, Volrod made a rope and galloped into the freezing waters of the turbulent sea. As he and his horse reached the ship, he threw out the rope and made for shore, towing two men behind. As they reached the shore, bystanders hurried to come and assist the survivors out of the swirling surf. Immediately and without a word, Volrod turned his horse around, plunged back into the icy sea. Seven times he rode out and swam to the ship, rescuing 14 people, two each time. This took several agonizing hours. The sea was icy cold, the waves were mountainous, and the current was very strong. The bystanders and soldiers on the shore insisted that he could not carry on. His horse was too exhausted, the storm was too intense. But the cries from the ship spurred Volrod Voltemard on once more, he said. And though exhausted, he plunged back at the sea an eighth time, swimming through the wild waves to the stricken de Jonge Thomas. This time, six men leapt from the ship, grabbed hold of the horse's mane, bridle, saddle, and tail. 
and it was just too much. Borat Baltimore and his gallant horse Bonk sunk beneath the waves and they were all drowned. In honor of Borat Baltimore's unselfish sacrifice and bravery above and beyond the call of duty, the VOC, the Dutch East India Company, named a ship after him, De Helt Voltemard, and later the Republic of South Africa made the Volrad Voltemard the highest civilian award for bravery that anyone can earn in this country. His name was also given to a number of streets and suburbs in the country and to one of the most powerful salvage tugs in the world, built in 1976. The Volrad Voltemard statue by Mitred Barberton can be seen in panels at outside the old mutual and uh, I've been there many a time, right at the entrance, very inspiring of Volrad Voltemard on his horse crashing through the waves. To Christians, Volrad Voltemard stands out as an example of dedication to saving the lost. We should all know the hymn, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin and the grave, weep over the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell him of Jesus, the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful, Jesus will save. Rescue the perishing, duty demands it. Strength for thy labor, the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way, patiently win them. Tell them, tell the poor wanderer, a savior has died. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Is a biblical command. We are commanded to rescue those being led away to death. Biblical truth should always involve knowledge that moves us to action. Theology is not just to stimulate us intellectually and add to our memory bank knowledge and information. Truth is always there to change attitudes and to change actions. Belief and behavior is meant to go together. Your belief should affect, should change your behavior. The whole concept of biblical truth and knowledge is always experiential. It is faith in action. It must not just affect the head, it must also affect the heart and the hands and the feet. It is not just intellectual, it is emotional, it is spiritual, it should be transformational. Biblical truth leads to bold action. The Bible describes a child in the womb as a person. In the Bible, there is no different word in the Hebrew or Greek to distinguish a child in the womb from a child out of the womb. The same word, word for baby in the womb is used for a toddler. The, baby, the Bible speaks about Elizabeth, who, when she heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb leapt for joy. This is referring to John the Baptist. Now, it's the same, same word is used whether it speaks of baby in the womb or a toddler crawling around. There's no different word to distinguish between a baby that is pre-born and a baby that is born in the Hebrew or the Greek in the Bible. As Elizabeth said, as soon as Mary's greeting reached my ears, the baby in her womb, John the Baptist, leapt for joy. In the Apostles' Creed, we recognize that Jesus became our Lord and Savior not at birth, not at baptism, but at conception. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Right at the heart of the Christian faith has always been, life begins at conception. For you formed my innermost part, you created me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139. An unborn baby is only unformed for the first four to five weeks. The scripture says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance. 
being yet unformed. That's also Psalm 139. Even before the baby is four or five weeks, the Lord sees and cares. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now people could not have understood just how true that was until recently with ultrasound and DNA. The zygote is the very first cell and it contains the entire DNA blueprint of your life. From the moment of conception, the color of your eyes, of your hair, the height that you'll attain to, all manner of details are already programmed into your DNA, which is in every cell of your body. The book, as the Bible says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Throughout the scripture, a baby is seen as a person. The spirit comes in at conception. God has called people from conception. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah 1 verse 5. It pleased God who separated me, who from my mother's womb called me through his grace to reveal the son in me that I might preach amongst the Gentiles. Jeremiah was called from the womb. Paul was called from the womb. Isaiah 49, listen to me, O islands, pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. He is the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. All life belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The Lord, he is God. He has made us. We are his. This is what the Lord says. He who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. And because all life is made by God, and because people are made in the image of God, no one has the right to murder the image of God another person. Proverbs 6 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. A haughty eye, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Proverbs 6 verse 16 17. Seven things that God hates, hands that shed innocent blood are amongst them. God is concerned for the weak and for the helpless. Defend the cause of the weak that are fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hands of the oppressor. Who is more weak and needy and fatherless than a pre-born baby destined to go to an abortion clinic? We are to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. We are to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. It's made clear in Luke chapter 1. The Lord Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is described in a message from the angel to Mary as holy from the point of conception. At the time that John the Baptist encountered the Lord Jesus, he would have been about six months after conception. The Lord Jesus was under 12 weeks old in the womb at the first time that they met. Yet John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit and leapt for joy within his mother's womb because he came within the presence of the Lord, who at that stage was barely formed in the first trimester. Again and again you see evidence in the scripture that the spirit enters at conception. That is when a new person is created. The Bible asks the question, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Well, how could it be? And yet some mothers do. We know that Rome was founded by twins who were abandoned by their mother. Romulus and Remus were brought up by a she-wolf. The very term abandoning them to the wolves comes from the Roman practice of throwing children out inside the city walls for the wolves. In some cases, the wolves showed more maternal instinct and compassion than the human mother did. Wolves have brought up abandoned babies in India and in Rome. There have been several documented cases of children being raised by wolves and reached adulthood. 
The Jungle Book is just one fictional story based upon actual events where wolves have shown more maternal instincts and love than the human mother herself did. Can a mother forget the baby? Yes, some might. Apparently some mothers can forget the baby. But the script says, though she may forget, yet I will not forget you. So we cannot actually speak about unwanted pregnancies and unwanted babies because while it might be unwanted from a human perspective, it's not from God's perspective. God is the author of life. Somebody cares, and it's always been a Christian goal and distinctive to care for the weak and to care for the fatherless and the helpless. See to it that you do not look down on any of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, the angels always see the Father's faith. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that one of these little ones should be lost. Matthew 18, the words of our Lord Jesus. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. This has motivated Christian pro-life movements from the very first century on. Abortion is not only a political issue. It's not just a social issue. It's not only a moral issue. It's not only an ethical issue. It is a religious issue. It is actually a spiritual battle. The pagan religions of the Near East practiced child sacrifice. Baal was worshipped as the key to fertility and prosperity. And these were prosperity and fertility cults that flourished in Canaan at that time. God commanded that they be opposed and that they be punished. To entice Baal to bless the land, each mother was required by Baal to bring their firstborn child as an offering to Baal. And Baal was represented by a huge stone or brass statue, carved in image of a bull uh, with a human body and a head of a bull, and the arms were extended outwards to receive the gifts of the child. And the parents would present the child in the hands of the priest. The priest would place the child in the arms of the Baal worship altar idol, and then flames, either from a cavity in the chest area or from beneath the arms, would consume the baby. And this was similar in the religion of the Amorites, who worshipped Moloch, and the Phoenicians who worshipped Tronox. All the Middle Eastern religions were child-sacrificing prosperity cults. You sacrificed your firstborn child to have bigger crops, better herds, better uh, harvests, and so on. And the true people of God have always found themselves fighting against child sacrifice. Deuteronomy 18.10 When you come into the land of the heathen, do not sacrifice your children. All those who love God hate death. Those, all those who hate God love death. In Exodus 1 verse 16, the beginning of the Exodus narrative, we read that Pharaoh commanded the midwives to kill the baby boys born to the Hebrews in Egypt. God commended the midwives in Hebrews 11 for disobeying that wicked law. They saved the babies and ensured that they were born alive. Moses himself was preserved by the ingenuity and the courage of his mother who defied Pharaoh's edict to kill the baby boys. In the New Testament, the Gospel begins in Matthew 2, with King Herod sending out his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all male children up to age 2. In Numbers 35 verse 33 we are told, The land comes under a curse when innocent blood is shed. Do not pollute the land. Bloodshed pollutes the land. Atonement cannot be made for any land on which blood is shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Numbers 35 verse 33. The contest between Pharaoh and Moses in Egypt was primarily a clash between the death-obsessed culture of Egypt and the way of life of Yahweh and the God of Israel. 
Egypt routinely put tens of thousands of people's entire life work into building a pyramid, which was basically a tomb. A pyramid was a tomb for one pharaoh and for hundreds of his servants who would be killed to accompany the pharaoh into the afterlife. A death-obsessed culture. The obsession of all that energy and industry put into building a tomb. The climactic battle on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal was a battle between a religion centered on child sacrifice and a religion centered on life and redemption and restoration. Throughout church history, we've seen Christians have been the very forefront of the fight for the right to life of preborn babies against the killing of innocent life. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the greatest Russian author of the 20th century, said, If we do not know our own history, we will simply have to endure the same absurdities, sacrifice and mistakes all over again. As one communist put it, the first step towards liquidating a people is to erase their memory, destroy their books, destroy their culture, destroy their history. Before the long, the community will forget what it was and what it is. The communists tried to do this in China and Russia and Albania and Cambodia, Ethiopia. Communists have tried to liquidate people by erasing the memory of the past and changing or falsifying the record of history. Karl Marx declared the first battlefield is the rewriting of history. It is vital for Christians to know what our history is and why we are pro-life. To be a Christian is to be pro-life. You cannot be a pro-abortion Christian. It's a contradiction in terms. Abortion, infanticide, exposure and euthanasia are the hallmark of every pagan religion, from Hinduism through to the Mayans and Aztecs. In ancient Rome, unwanted infants were literally left outside the city walls to die of exposure or to be eaten by wolves. It was against the law to rescue babies that had been abandoned at these designated abandonment areas. They were abandoned under paterfamilias, which is a Roman law that gave the parents absolute rights over their children. Even a teenager could be executed by the parents without any legal consequences. No matter what the age, the parents had absolute right of life over their children. Even a married child could be executed by the parents legally in Rome. To kill their child was a parent's right, and nobody had the right to save those children. Christians had to break the law in order to adopt tens of thousands of babies that were thrown outside the city walls. It is said that the early church grew more by adoption than it did even from evangelism. The Greeks gave pregnant women harsh doses of herbal abortifacents, and the Persians developed surgical curatage procedures for killing babies. The Egyptians disposed of unwanted babies by having them born alive and then disemboweling and dismembering them shortly after birth. And the collagen of the baby was ritually harvested for beauty and cosmetic products. Even today we see Planned Parenthood is selling aborted babies for some beauty industry products that they actually use the collagen. In the Aztec Empire in Mexico and the Inca Empire in Peru, they had massive child sacrifice. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed just to make the sun rise each day. There were 80,000 skulls on the skull racks of just one temple in Montezuma's uh, capital of what today is Mexico. There have always been Christians who have made a pro-life stand. In the early church, one of the early bold names of trans is Basil of Caesarea. He lives in the 4th century. Basil came from an influential family. He studied in Caesarea and Constantinople in Athens and in Rome. He studied law and he entered the ministries. 
Basil led 18 church services a week, except during Easter and Christmas when he had even more services. In addition, he taught children and he visited and encouraged the sick and the needy. And Basil built up one of the first hospitals in the world. And through his hospital work, he discovered there was a guild of abortionists in Caesarea. They gave aborted, uh, pregnant women herbal portions to induce abortions and used surgical means to kill unwanted babies. And the bodies of these babies were then sold to Egypt, where the collagen was used to make cosmetics, for which Egypt was famous. Basil was horrified, and he approached the city fathers. He was shocked to find that all this was perfectly legal and always had been. Basil preached sermons on the sanctity of life, and he mobilized the members of his church to care for women going through a crisis pregnancy. He exercised the full weight of his personal and family influences to actually change the laws. He began to educate people in the cities so that they could understand the issues involved, and he prayed imprecatory prayers, prayers from the Psalms, prayers for justice against the abortion guild, declaring them to be anathema. He staged public protests against the Egyptian traders who were helping to support the abortion trade by funding collagen harvesting. Basil taught that she who has deliberately murdered a fetus must bear the full penalty for murder. Moreover, those who aided the mother, who would give abortifacents for the destruction of a child, were murderers themselves, along with the mother who received it. He challenged the tradition of paterfamilias under Roman law, where parents could kill their children of any age. He campaigned to make all this illegal. So passionate was Basil in his concern for life that one night he and several deacons went outside the city to dismantle the old infanticide shrine. And this direct action could have jeopardized their standing in the community because it was illegal to damage such property. But he had irrepressible spiritual imperative to save lives. As a result of Basil's stand against abortion and child sacrifice, the Emperor Valentarian took the first steps towards criminalizing child killing in AD 374. This is the decree of the Emperor Valetarian. All parents must support their children conceived. Those who have brutalized or abandoned should be subject to the full penalty prescribed by law. All the early church fathers agreed with Basil that life begins at conception and abortion is murder. The Didache is the oldest published Christian teaching, the oldest Christian book in existence dating back to the Apostles as essential teaching for those who want baptism, the Didache. And the Didache declares there are two ways, the ways of life and the way of death. The difference between the two ways is great, therefore do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newly born infant. This is in the Catechism for Training People, Preparing Them for Baptism. Didache was used for teaching new converts. St. George, the patron saint of England, is known as the Dragon Slayer, and the English flag is known as the Cross of St. George. Now, he was a Christian soldier who gained fame for daring rescues of women and children in distress. He's known as the Dragon Slayer not because he killed rare reptiles and strange beasts, but because he fought against evil and he rescued innocents from the jaws of death. He rescued damsels from distress and babies from murder. John Calvin of Geneva wrote this about abortion. The unborn child, though enclosed in the womb of his mother, is already a human being. It should not be robbed of the life which it has not yet been able to begin to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in the field, because a man's home is a place of most secure refuge, it will surely be deemed more atrocious to destroy an unborn child in the womb before he has even seen the light. In Deuteronomy, the law of God states that a person who kills someone in his own home is guilty of a greater crime than that who kills someone in a field. 
So John Calvin applies this principle declaring it's more atrocious to kill a baby in its place where it should be greatest sanctuary, the mother's womb. And all the reformers taught this and were clearly pro-life. One of the early missionaries of the church in China described this. There is a pond in the middle of town known as the baby's pond. This is the place where unwanted little ones are thrown by their mothers. There are always several bodies of innocents floating on the green, slimy waters and passers by look on without any surprise. This is what the world was like before a clear, uncompromising gospel was presented. Before the gospel of Christ came to proclaim the sanctity of life, abandoning of babies and killing of babies was normal. William Carey campaigned against the Indian legal tradition that gave parents the right to sacrifice their own children. He personally drafted the reform legislation that prohibited parents from practicing child sacrifice. At the mouth of the Ganges River, mothers would throw their children either to drown or to be eaten by the crocodiles, and this was considered a sacrifice to the mother Ganges. The edict came out in 1803 forbidding this, and it's even known today as Carey's Edict. Anna Bowden was a Victorian lady. She attended the Bible School of London to be trained as an overseas missionary. Anna Bowden heard a visiting missionary speak at a school and was enthralled, and she went to India. When she arrived at the mission station, uh, she discovered uh, no missionaries. The mission station had been abandoned. She stayed and reopened the mission, the clinic, and the school. And then she discovered there was a Hindu movement trying to go back to old ways called the Ara Samja, dedicated to the purification of Hinduism, returning to ancient pagan values including immolation, sati, the burning of widows on funeral pies, which at that time was legal, and what they called Diana, or female infanticide, killing of female babies. Commander, a cultic abortion was also practiced. So Anna Bowden set up a rescue network to lead a group of pro-lifers to interfere with these pagan practices and to rescue the children from being sacrificed to save lives. She made such an impact that by 1893, the leader of the Suvi reform movement, Saraswati, appealed to the British Viceroy to stop Anna Bowden. The Viceroy ordered Anna, refrain from any activity not directly related to the operation of your mission work. Anna replied, rescuing innocent human life is directly related to any missionary work, and in fact it's directly related to being a Christian witness. She could not be a missionary without rescuing innocent life. This didn't satisfy Saraswati, so he sent an angry mob of Hindus to the mission compound, who burned the mission compound down and tortured and killed Anna to death. But that was not the end. Although her commitment to saving innocent life cost her own life, her death stimulated and mobilized the church to call on the British government to fundamentally alter the essence of their policy of non-interference, not just in India, but everywhere that the Crown had influence. It enforced a universal legal code throughout the British Empire, rooted in the Christian principle of the sanctity of life, and outlawed all these murderous pagan practices. Nan Mullins was a dedicated, effective Southern Baptist missionary in China. She believed in personal evangelism, discipleship and social activism as integral to her calling. She was specifically concerned about the lack of respect for human life amongst the Chinese. Female infanticide or sex selection abortions were commonplace. For eight years she lived out a Christian life amongst the Chinese. However, it was only when she was on her deathbed that the regional governor, Anan Ching, yielded to a lifelong campaign and criminalized all form of child killing. 
He said, I've granted this because all her life Nan Mellon's lived selflessly for our people. If I could restore her to health and life, I would do it. But since I cannot, I will give her what I know she desires even more, health and life for others. These are just some of many examples of how Christians through the ages have been pro-life and have sought to rescue the perishing. Europeans have been moving away from the moral stance of the Bible and become accepting ancient pagan values, largely because of Darwinian evolutionism. And as a result, we've seen the chaos that has come in the 20th century. From the church standing on a rock-solid word of God to compromises tolerating paganism and infanticide, abortion is not progress. Abortion is regression back to pre-Christian paganism, as is euthanasia, as is pornography. I mean, these things are not progress. In South Africa, we had this arrogant movement called the Velictas, and they were Velicta, They were the enlightened ones, and you know those of us who stood for um, censoring pornography and so on. We were the Kalamtas. They Velictas. Sort of lines up with enlightenment and Lucifer, and so they always portray themselves as pro- progress. But it's not progress to go back to pre-Christian paganism, child sacrifice, nakedness in public, pornography perversion, all these other evils, or killing babies. The scripture is clear. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will make a stand for me against the workers of iniquity? Those who condemn the innocent to death. Psalm 94 verse 16. This is a call to action. Abortion is an hidden holocaust. More people have died of abortion in the 20th century than throughout all other forms of violence in the past 2,000 years combined. Not just in the last 100 years. Yes, abortion has killed far more people than the people who have died in the wars, but if you want to go, you can go back through the last 2,000 years. Abortion is the biggest killer, the greatest killer. The most dangerous place in the world is not Ukraine, or Syria, or Iraq, or Afghanistan, or Somalia, or Nigeria. The most dangerous place in the world is a mother's womb. Abortion turns a womb into a tomb, it turns a mother into a murderess, it turns a doctor into a hired assassin that takes innocent life for money. It is of the utmost hypocrisy for people to condemn apartheid, discrimination on the basis of race, and then accept abortion, which is discrimination on the basis of age. It's also absolutely hypocritical to condemn the Holocaust of the past and to say nothing about the Holocaust of the present. People are complicit in this. There's a remnant who stands firm, but the bulk of churches, they have separated the Christian faith from their daily work and witness. Now theological truth is just seen as something that uh, you have in your head, not something that actually changes your beliefs or your behavior. It doesn't change your attitudes, it doesn't change your actions. Now literally people's beliefs put in a separate box, that's my spiritual life, separate from my political life. More men turn out at a Angus Buck and Mighty Men's Conference than vote pro-life in our elections. So we'll have literally more men will attend one mighty men's conference than will vote for a party that supports the rights of life of pre-born babies. Most, assuming every woman in this country votes for pro-abortion parties, which obviously they don't, um, that still means that many of the men who attend a mighty men's conference speak about transformation revival are voting for pro-abortion parties. It's insane. How is it possible that the vast majority of Christians in South Africa vote for parties like the DA that support the killing of babies through abortion and perversion and homosexuality and LGBTQ, transgender movements and all the rest of it? We must make a strong stand for 
the right to life. We cannot waste our votes on pro-abortion parties. This is an election year, and this is super important, which is why this March for Life on Thursday is so important. How can people waste their tax money and their vote on pro-abortion parties again and again? It's unbelievable hypocrisy. You are smaller than I am. You're younger than I am. You're weaker than I am. I'm stronger than you. Therefore, I can have you ripped to pieces, poisoned, strangled, or drowned in a bucket of water. That's what abortion is. It's bullying. It's mass murder by bullies. Abortion doesn't just discriminate and take away a baby's right to vote. It takes away the baby's right to life. Any government, any person, which can allow the murder of unborn babies is intrinsically evil. Whether you're talking about the British government, the American government, the Chinese government, the Southern government, any government that allows the legalization of abortion is evil. Any government that legalizes abortion, the killing of the most innocent life of all, shows itself incapable of justice or logic. Any government not protecting innocent life from the violence of abortion is evil. They are wicked. They are an abomination in the sight of God and inviting the judgment of God upon them and those who vote for them. Abortion is the greatest evil and the greatest killer of life in the history of mankind. The abortion industry carries within it the seeds of its own destruction. Evil will destroy the wicked. What a man sows, that shall he reap. If you fall and fail in times of stress, how small is your strength? The generation that legalized the killing of babies through abortion will be the generation that is euthanized. They'll you know this is happening in Europe as well. In Netherlands and in Belgium, they have legalized euthanasia. They've had legalized abortion for a long time, but now you have government doctors who can, without the request of the patient, without the request of the relatives, euthanize the patient. A state-funded doctor, just because they need more beds or this person's costing too much money for the welfare department or whatever. Literally thousands of people are euthanized every year in Belgium and Netherlands without the request of the patient or even the relatives. Just arbitrary decision by a doctor euthanizing the patient. Doctors killing patients, can you imagine? A state employee deciding whether you've got the right to live or not. So you, you, you legalize abortion, that generation will be the generation that experiences euthanasia. And that's just one of the ways. It's another way is that in some societies you're getting more old people on pensions than people working and paying taxes. That's an unsustainable base. Instead of a triangle of working people with a few aged needing support uh, when they're old, you've got the other inverted pyramid. We've got more people on pensions than those working and paying taxes. An inverted pyramid is an unsustainable basis. And this is happening all over the world. Proverbs 24, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he weigh your heart, perceive it? Does not he guard your heart, know it? Will he not repay each one according to what he's done? Proverbs 24 is actually a threat. God says, I'm the one who determines whether you live and when you die. I'm the one who protects your life. I'm the eternal judge. If you say, we knew nothing about this, does not God who weighs your heart know it? He who guards your life, he knows this. Why should God protect you if you won't protect the pre-born from the violence of abortion? What, what are we to say about Christians who want nothing to do with the risk of pre-born babies, who are being led away to death, who are cowards and traitors, who even waste their votes in pro-abortion parties? Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are mute dogs that cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. 
Isaiah 56 speaks about these dumb dogs who cannot even bark. This is a serious condemnation and John Calvin says a dumb dog is better than a minister of the gospel who cannot preach against evil when he sees it. Even a dumb dog will bark when he senses danger for his master. What can he say about ministers who cannot preach against evil when they see it? I can tell you why many ministers don't preach against it. Many of them are participants in this evil. When I was at Theological College, there was a minister preparing for, for the ministry in my class and one night I was having supper with him and his wife and it came out somehow at supper that when he was just a youth leader, his girlfriend, late his fiancé and wife, became pregnant. But her family was very high up in the Baptist Union. Her brother was high up. In fact, he had become president of the Baptist Union sometime later. And, and her fiancé, not quite yet her boyfriend, was destined to be a minister in the Baptist Union. So it was decided the best thing was for her to be sent to Britain to have an abortion. Abortion was illegal in South Africa. So her father took her to Jan Smuts Airport and prayed for her for joining mercies before putting her on a plane to go to Britain to kill his grandchild. Now, they told me this, and this is you know, shocking. How can you ever forget something like that? But later, I was preaching in their church, and there was his wife with a baby bouncing on her knee. And, uh, you know, I've known people who've had abortions who regret it, who've testified in a marches for life. I regret my abortion. They now use their testimony to try and challenge other people how bad it is. But on this occasion, both this man, who'd been a friend at college, and his wife were scorning me, mocking me, and jeering me for my pro-life message that I was giving at that occasion. This is why some ministers don't make a stand for the right to life. They're not just complicit, they're unrepentant about their complicity. Why do so many ministers not preach against pornography? Why don't they make a stand against LGBTQ? Well, maybe they're complicit in these evils and they can't make a stand. As John Calvin says, a dumb dog is better than such ministers. Martin Luther said, God will pave the streets of hell with the skulls of bishops, cardinals, and priests. And you can just imagine there are some, there's nothing worse than a traitor. And these people are meant to be servants of God, who are actually traitors of God, and they're cowards. They refuse to make a stand. God will pave the streets of hell with their skulls. Can we reverse the legalization of abortion in South Africa? The answer is yes, definitely. This is an election year. Do you know how many people say, what difference can my vote make? But do you know, more people are eligible to vote who are not registered to vote or who don't vote than actually do vote. So the people who say, what difference can my vote make? Well, if you could get the people who don't vote, and the people who are not registered to vote, to register and to actually get out and vote, you can outnumber all the people who have been voting so far. This is the biggest challenge, that the people who say, what difference can my vote make, outnumber the people who do vote. So what difference can it make? All the difference in the world. Abortion was legalized in Poland in 1956, but when Solidarity overthrew the communist government in 1990, they made abortion illegal. Since then, abortion in Poland has been legal only in the two hard cases of a mother's life at stake or in the case of rape and incest. And do you know, yet they haven't had one single legal abortion case since 1990. Because although they're allowed, the hard cases are strictly defined, they haven't had any of those cases, or the mothers decide to go through anyway and have the child put up for adoption. Poland is an example of a country that's had legalized abortion, reversed it, and now protects life. Ireland, both north and south, are also examples of countries in Europe where the European Union demands abortion rights for all its members, but Ireland, North and South, 
have responded, no, never under any circumstances, take a long flying leap into hell, we will not under any circumstances. And the EU had said, okay, Ireland is an exception. So if you feel strongly enough about something, you can beat even the beast of Brussels. Zambia, after 27 years of socialism and legalized abortion, the Zambian government reversed this after President Frederick Chaluba declared Zambia a Christian country in 1991. Abortion is still illegal in Zambia. It's illegal in Chile and Namibia and many other Muslim or Catholic countries in the world. Abortion is illegal throughout the whole of Africa. There's only two countries in all of Africa that legalize abortion. Tunisia in the far north and South Africa, sadly. Tragically. Protestant countries should be in the very forefront of the fight against abortion. Whatever you did unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Whatever you did not do unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it to me, says the Lord. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, to do to others as you would want them to do to you. If you don't like the idea of being poisoned to death, don't allow it to be done to a baby. If you don't like the idea of being snatched out of your home and cut to pieces, don't let it be done to a baby. Do to others you want to be done unto. We can show our love for God by rescuing unborn babies. We can show our love for our neighbor by rescuing those being led away to death. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Rescue those being led away to death. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for your love and for your mercy. We thank you, Lord God, that we have the right, the privilege and the duty of standing for life, to stand up for you. We hear your call, who is on the Lord's side, who will serve the King, and Lord, we want to say we are on your side. Help us, Lord God, to keep watch for you, with you, even just for an hour. Help us, Lord God, to mobilize a good amount of people to stand for life and go to the gates of Parliament this coming week and make a stand for the right to life of preborn babies and against the violence and injustice, the evil of abortion. May you, Lord God, bless our witness, our counseling, bless our ministry so that we can save lives and help those in crisis pregnancies to choose life so that they and their children may live. Give us, we pray, the strength, the courage, the tenacity that we need not to give up, but to be consistently pro-life and to be effective Christian witnesses for your honor and glory. Make us more brave and bold for you, for we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.